Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying so that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. As I was thinking what to talk about this morning, this moment in Jesus' story came to mind. Um, Up until this point, we've seen Jesus as this powerful, miracle-working person. He has expelled literal demons. He's healed people from tons of diseases. He's gone into the, the temple. He's cleared away all the all the like people who were like mistreating his father's house. He in all these scenes, he's he's viewed as powerful. He's viewed as God himself. And he comes into all these spaces and he he just exudes the power of God. But in this scene, um we see a slightly different side of Jesus. And I think this is one of the the only stories where we see the side of Jesus. Jesus is in a moment of doubt and vulnerability. He's in a moment where he has questions about what's about to happen. He realizes what this situation is leading up to and what's going to happen. And he takes his friends and he goes to this garden and he has a moment of prayer with God. And he goes to God and he's like, I don't think you're right. My, he says, not your will, but my will, implying that his will is different than God's right now. He's like, if there's any other way, let's do that. I, I'm not sure about this whole dying torture. That's not, I don't know about that. I'm having doubts and questions. And I would like to submit to you this morning that Jesus is in a moment of deconstruction. Of deconstruction. Now, what is deconstruction? Um, I have a question, and you may not want to answer it, but if you believed in the Tooth Fairy as a child, would you please raise your hand? Really? Okay, I was expecting no one, but I appreciate your guys' honesty, and I, I bet you can see where this is going. Okay, so when I was a, a small, wee little lad, 
I um, did believe in the Tooth Fairy. Uh, if you want to know why, ask my father. Um, <laughs> he he would tell me these stories uh, whenever I would lose a tooth when I was like five or six. He would be like, oh, put it under your pillow. And the Tooth Fairy would come. And then for some reason, he told me that the Tooth Fairy would eat the teeth, which is kind of gross. Um, <laughs> but one... You know, like when you're a kid and you're just like in like a long, long car rides and you're just like thinking about life. You know what I mean? Okay. So one time at this is the story as I, as I heard it from my father, um, I was in the car and I just started thinking and I was like, wait a second. Why does the tooth fairy eat my teeth? That's an odd thing to do. And that's not normal. And why do I put it under my pillow and then suddenly get a dollar? One time he put a carrot in a quarter because it had a cavity in it. Um, <laughs> yes, this is, yes. Okay, so moving on. Um, so I was in the car and I was like, dad, the, the, does the tooth fairy real? And my dad turns over to my sister and he goes, Mia, do you want to tell him? And what had happened was my dad uh, Mia had caught my dad writing one of the letters that he put under our pillow. And from then on, my dad had enlisted my sister as the Tooth Fairy's helper. And she had been the one putting everything under my pillow. And she was like, I'm the Tooth Fairy. <laughs> she was like, Mom and Dad are the Tooth Fairies. Everybody's a Tooth Fairy. And I was like, how long have you known? And she was like, a year. And I was like, oh my goodness. I thought that the Tooth Fairy was real. And this is a very funny illustration to say one thing. That um, when, I, I, when I thought that I knew who the Tooth Fairy was and I was confronted with the reality that I no longer knew who the Tooth Fairy was and I had questions and doubts, this was a moment, a funny moment of deconstruction. Now, um, deconstruction simply means going back to something that we've been given, a belief or something, and asking questions and probing around and seeing like, oh, is that legit? And so in, um, in A.J. Swoboda's book, he's a professor um, from the Pacific Northwest, he outlines what he calls the theological journey. And if I could put that slide on there. Okay, so I'm going to spend a moment um, explaining this and don't get lost, don't get lost in the details. Uh, this is a tool that I'm going to use later on. So the theological journey. So he outlines how our beliefs in God and the church are given to us during the phase of construction. This is the moment that you first meet Jesus. And for a lot of us, this was our community growing up. This was maybe our family or maybe um, close relatives who introduced us to God, to the church, to the Bible, and gave us beliefs as a starting point. Um, this community is the community that I was, I went through construction with and my family went through construction with. And this is the phase where, um, where we don't criticize the beliefs that we're given. We accept them and we're like, oh, God is loving. The Sabbath is really cool. Revelation 14 is pretty dope, weirdly. But like when we go through construction, we uncri uncritically accept our beliefs. But the problem is that when we go through the construction phase, we are given beliefs by a community made of broken, imperfect people who sometimes get it right and sometimes get it wrong. And this leads us into the phase of deconstruction, where we realize that some of the beliefs that we have been handed are maybe not the best. Um, 
And then when we go through a phase of questioning and doubt as to what we want to take into, uh, take from construction and leave behind. And then we move on to reconstruction, where we come back to our original faith and we're like, with, with, a, with a new light of who God is. And we have a renewed interest in our first love, as Revelation would call it. And we come back and we have a faith that has stood the test of, of questioning and doubt. And now we come with a confidence in our faith that cannot be shaken. A confidence in who, what we believe about Jesus and our experience about Jesus. Now, I want to talk about how a lot of people in our community right now and many Christian communities uh, in the United States and around the world, but especially in the United States, um, don't always get to the stage of reconstruction. There's a lot of reasons for this, um, but one of them is that our culture, our society, our secular society is not only accepts constant deconstruction, but promotes it. We live in a society that makes us question everything and we view that as a great thing. Which truth is completely relative in the secular world, especially in the academic world, but even in the secular world where everybody, you have your own truth, I have my own truth, and we need to go back and just, we can all cherry pick what beliefs we want, we can all do this. And that is what the secular society thinks. And that doesn't stop when we come to the church. And the church in a lot of ways has adopted some of that posture, but there are different ways that we deconstruct. And I want to talk about two different ways of deconstruction, healthy and unhealthy. Because deconstruction is not good or bad. It is one phase in this process, but it is not the entire phase. And healthy deconstruction looks like what the prophets of the Old Testament did, where they called Israel out on not being faithful to God and said, you need to rethink your beliefs now. Healthy reconstruction looks like the apostles. When Paul writes a letter and he's like, guys, please don't sleep around with each other. Please don't like curse. That's not cool. This is not what we're supposed to be doing. And finally, healthy deconstruction looks like Jesus himself who goes through these processes and he calls out the religious leaders and he's like, guys, repent. The, the call for repentance means to deconstruct your previous beliefs. And it also looks like Jesus in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's also another kind of deconstruction, which I think is more prevalent in our, in maybe our church circles. The unhealthy deconstruction where we have two sides. We have the side that says deconstruction and questions are bad and we should not talk about it. De questions will actually hurt your faith and we shouldn't focus on any of that because God is truth and John 3.16, amen. And then we have the other side of deconstruction where they're like, question everything about your faith constantly. Have paradigm shifts, go through the entire thing, and then get used to that and just live in constant deconstruction. And a lot of these two extremes come from a place of deep pain and hurt by the church. Maybe it's a church leader. Maybe it is not even dealing with church at all, but maybe it is you've lost a loved one and you're just not sure how to move on in your faith. Either way, these two phases of unhealthy and healthy reconstruction um, manifest themselves in this community with these people here right now. And a lot of us don't know how to move from deconstruction into reconstruction of our faith in a healthy way. And this morning, I want to give you the idea 
that prayer is how we do that. Prayer is the answer to how we move healthily from deconstruction into reconstruction. And in order to uh, talk about how prayer does that, we need to talk about what prayer is really quickly. So prayer is what's called a spiritual discipline. And if that language is new to you, there's a quote by Henry Nouwen that I would like to put on screen. In the spiritual life, the word discipline means the effort to create some space in which God can act. Discipline means to prevent everything in your life from being filled up. Next slide. Discipline means that somewhere you're not occupied and certainly not preoccupied to create space in which something can happen that you hadn't planned or counted on. All spiritual disciplines are simply making room for God in your life. My point with all of that is this. Prayer is not an end in itself. One of the most dangerous and unhealthy things about conservative Adventist Christianity is that sometimes we make the discipline the destination. The discipline of prayer and all these spiritual disciplines are the vehicle to get to the destination. That is what prayer is. It's a way for us to make room so that God can come in our life and we must move on to how um, now that we have prayer as a tool, we need to find out what that destination is that prayer is trying to lead us to. Um, can I have the next quote up on the screen, please? Richard Foster defines prayer as this, to pray is to change. To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a notable characteristic in our lives. The closer we come to the heartbeat of God, the more we need, the more we see our need, and the more we desire to be conformed to Christ. Prayer does a lot of things. Through prayer, healing is possible. Through prayer, demons can be expelled and reality itself can be changed. But the main avenue that God uses to transform our lives and to use prayer to do is to transform ourselves. To transform ourselves. So now that we have a vision of what prayer is, I would like to outline how prayer can help move, help us move healthily through deconstruction and into reconstruction. Abraham Joshua Heschel puts it like this, prayer involves a desire for experience rather than a search for information. Prayer involves a desire for experience rather than a search for information. Indeed, to pray does not only mean to seek help, it also means to seek him. Through prayer, we are not trying to get answers. We're not trying to get the um, information about God. We're not trying to understand all these intellectual concepts and all of these ideas that we have in our head about who God is and what he's doing. We're trying to get an encounter with God. Through prayer, we learn to accept God as a person and not an idea. Um, one sec, let me turn my page here. The next quote is by uh, a poet from New Zealand. And he says that God is not a theology. God is not a trinket or a genie in a bottle. 
He is not your security or promise of health, wealth, and power. He is God. He's a person. He is not static. I want to turn back to Jesus and his moment of deconstruction. And I have, a, I have an Ellen White quote um, that I'd like to share with you. The Savior could not see, you've probably heard this before, through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave, a conqueror, or tell him of his father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Jesus is in his moment of deconstruction, and I would like to offer you the idea that Jesus does not view prayer as a way to get information about God. Jesus does not view prayer as a way to get information about his situation or what he's going through. Jesus does not use prayer to get answers because if he did, then Jesus' prayer would have failed. Jesus' prayer ended with the exact opposite of what he asked God to do. He's like, if there's any other way, please, let's do that one. And Jesus, that, that doesn't happen for him. People come with swords and clubs and Jesus is like, all right, we're going to move on with it. But Jesus uses prayer to navigate his moment of deconstruction. What was Jesus doing if he wasn't seeking answers? He was seeking proximity. In the face of unanswered questions and doubt, he moved forward trusting in the mystery of God as a person that he knew. Prayer is the tool which allows proximity with person. Answers from God become less important the more that that intimacy grows. How do we move forward when we have our moments of deconstruction? People in this community are going through deconstructions right now. They have questions and they have doubts. And if they don't right now, it's a normal part of being human. And all of us will at one time in our life have a moment of doubt and deconstruction. We have to learn how to lean into the wonder and the mystery of Jesus himself. How to approach prayer with the goal of getting to know a person. That is the way forward to lean into the wonder and the mystery of Jesus himself. Father, I ask a blessing on everybody who's here right now and everybody who's watching online. And I ask that your, your presence would be with them and that you would continue to teach us how to follow you back. Thank you for showing up. You are God and we love you. Amen.